This is a Media Lab podcast. Dave, do you think it's okay to ever joke about death? Yeah, otherwise I'd be in a lot more trouble. Right? Now. It's like it's my life. What do you think that is? Why do you think we as humans need to have that macabre nature about ourselves? It's, it like it goes back centuries at this point of people being like, "Well, let's just make fun of that everyone is going to die anyways." It's the role of humor. And comedy. It's the whole point is to take things we don't actually want to look at and find a way to laugh at them. Otherwise, mm. life really fucking sucks. Life's hard enough as it is, but you know, I think that's the grand survival technique is to just stare at death and start laughing at it in its face, daring it. <laughs> I just like it when people fart. Oh, well... On a rinky-dink spaceship headed back to Earth, Kyle and Dave are stuck on board with an evil machine. This giant robot is forcing them to watch films it picks. If they don't obey, then it'll be the end of the world. Again. This is mostly Kyle's fault, but he's not going to face an apocalypse alone. Especially not on this ship that seems to be held together with tape and imagination. This is Kyle and Dave versus The Machine. Welcome to Kyle and Dave vs. The Machine. My name is Kyle. I'm Dave. And I'm The Machine. This is a podcast where a sentient machine was forcing us to watch movies in order to prevent it from initiating the apocalypse. And then another apocalypse happened. Somehow it's used its powers to transport us across time and space. So now we're on our way back to Earth. The machine still threatens our lives if we don't review the films it asks us to. Although we do tend to talk about the ideas of the movie rather than the movie itself. And today, we're going to be watching the film Harold and Maud. Well, if you want to sing out, sing out. And if you want to be free, be free. That he may bless and deliver all souls of the faithful departed, bring them to the bliss of heaven and eternal peace. Oh Lord, grant him forgiveness for all his sins. By the help of your grace, you who live and reign forever and ever. Amen. new each day after all we're given life to find it out <laughs> it doesn't last forever oh it's all right it's okay as always a great big thanks to our patrons green girl yyc and it's a conspiracy podcast you know dave before we jump into you know our history with this film i've been thinking i think we might need to invite on another guest here an outside perspective someone who might have a hand in understanding how like writing goes from page to screen so i think we should call up matthew k begby oh wow that's a long name our hologram machine is gonna wear out at this rate we've invited a lot of people on this ship with us i should say like I, what i what i've actually found really interesting is that the, the pale blue dot is visible through the windscreen so we can see earth it's in our sights dave we're almost back home i love it's probably only gonna be another like five-ish months 
I love that we're not astronauts because we think we need a windscreen on our spaceship. <laughs> You know, with the windshield wipers and stuff. By the way, I oh, loved how that one car had three windshield wipers. Did you notice that on that one scene? No, actually, I didn't. I was just absorbed by it, the Jaguar his, hearse. So. Yes, yeah. His hearse has three windshield wipers on it. Matthew, thank you so much for answering the phone call. Thanks for having me. Happy to Happy to talk. Great. I'm hoping that you have a little bit of time to both sit and watch the movie Harold and Maude and then talk to us about it. Do you have nothing but time right now? I have nothing but time. I'm, I, uh, I have oodles and oodles and oodles. I like those, those packets called oodles of noodles. It's one of my favorite things while walking through the supermarket, but that has nothing to do with anything. Like I know your, your role as a writer, playwright, I like to call you a Twitter provocateur. I don't know. You can take that if you'd like to. Sure. But I don't know if you want to like add anything into that bio for people that they may know you from. Well, it's a very nice bio, uh, very generous bio. Uh, I appreciate it. And that's pretty much it. I'm, I'm a writer. Um, I work in television. I'm a playwright. And um, I spend way too much of my time on Twitter. So you kind of covered all my bases. Thanks. Excellent. All right. Perfect. Let's start with this. Uh, Matthew, what is your history with the movie Harold and Maude? Well, I saw it for the first time in a media crit class in college. And then I think almost immediately after that class was in another class where we discussed it as a play. Um, oh. So we, I kind of have like done a little bit of analysis on it from like both sides of that. But it's funny because like it was one of those movies that I... I have a terrible blind spot with movies. Like I, I've missed so many things, but I love a lot of media that like I then find the things in reverse by mm. finding the things that those projects were influenced by. And Harold and Maude was like one of the key ones that I was like, Oh, this makes sense. Uh, this was a, a big gap in my knowledge, but that was kind of it. And, and ever since it's kind of been a staple as far as like film and, and mm -hmm. media. How about you, Dave? What do you have any history with this movie whatsoever? No, I, I think I've I've heard of it and I've seen the poster. And what's funny is I didn't know it was seventy one. So I always thought it was a Matthew Broderick film because oh, in the weird. picture, okay. it's kind of got that baby face Matthew Broderick mm. look. And then when you say we're going to watch it, I was like, oh yeah, he'd have been probably three years old or something. So that's not going to be what this is. Uh, so this will be the first time I've seen it, and I actually don't know what it's about at all. I, I guess I'm a little bit similar to Matthew in this case because I kept seeing it referred to. I would go down these rabbit holes in my like early twenties of being like, I wonder how like I wonder how this movie got made and I want to know like what this director thinks and like just reading interviews and watching stuff on YouTube. And so I kept seeing this movie referred to over and over and over again to the point of like, okay, so I have to watch this because it's now like a dozen or so times that people that I respect and like their work have talked about this movie. So there has to be something here. The The basic premise I knew it was like, okay, it has an, an 80 year old woman and an 18 year old uh, kid is essentially how it's kind of pitched. And then I watched it and fell in love with it. I was like, oh, this is actually way different than I interpreted what that log line was going to be. And yeah, and I've returned to it every few years. It is one of my favorite movies of all time. So unfortunately, 
Dave, I'm going to probably be gushing about this movie for the most part, and you get to be the wet blanket of the podcast yet again to be like, <laughs> we'll see, yeah. uh, show po- poke out the things that you don't like, sort of thing. I don't, yeah, I don't know if Matthew knows, but what's my aggregate average for 1971? Oh, Did I, I get over like, two yet? I don't think no, so. No, I think you're at 1.9 <laughs> or something like that. It's it's, it's not high. It's not high. <sighs> it's um, a good time. It's been a good year. Just to just to add into that, I know Matthew, you said you have some blind spots as far as movies go, but like in general, like w- how much of seventies film have you watched? Oh my gosh! I mean, I so little, and and I, I when I say I blind spots, I mean like I saw Jurassic Park for the first time this year, like famously sure. though at this point. I feel right. like I've talked nothing about no, about nothing but Jurassic Park since Poltergeist. I saw for the first time this year. Like I was seeing very huge influential things I, I mean i've also seen my favorite movies of all time within the past two years and those were things like right. scream and whatever so mm-hmm. um i grew up watching very few very a very limited few movies was it more because you were more into tv or was there something else that you were spending time with i was always like obsessive with tv i i the, and we can i'm sure i'll come back to it several times just because of the nature of harold and Maude. but like my favorite project and favorite thing for many years was tv film whatever was pushing daisies the brian mm. fuller series and i feel like obviously influenced by harold and Maude. but um yeah i would just get like obsessive over projects and then in the similar what i was saying before would like find things in reverse um lost was another one of those where then kind of backtracked and ended up discovering all these things that influence lost mm-hmm. hitchcock i found through pushing daisies like which is right. i feel like an insane sentence to say but yeah no, i you know i i think that's perfectly reasonable as far like there's so much media of course nowadays and a lot of it easy to to access but i don't know how else you would do it it's like you're going to be watching right. current stuff of course of like what's coming out at the time and so as people start to reference things like now it's time to go through the time machine and go back right. and see what holds up and what doesn't uh that's what Dave and I have really been discovering it's like some movies don't hold up after a certain while right. and some do, but not to go on too big of a tangent, but I went through such a hard time with Brian Fuller TV shows because I fell in oh, love with three of them and all of them are canceled after one season. Yeah, it's like, these they, are so they, good. <laughs> they ruin you because you're just getting invested and then they're done. And then they're um, done. It's like, here's your 12 episodes that you get to, to watch over and over again. All right, well, let's get some resolution ourselves. Let's go and watch this movie, Harold and Maude, and we'll come back and talk about it a little bit more. And maybe I'll finally get to talk. I feel bad we had to leave Matthew in the other room while we did our ad reads here. So this is too precious a material to do in front of our guests. So so hopefully he's he's having fun in, in the green room right now. Can, do you want to be a Harold or do you want to be a Maude, do you think? Well, I was just going to ask you to just steady this chair and hold this end of this rope while I, uh, I'm oh. just going to try something out. You know, you don't have to do this. I can just do this for you, Dave. No. You, you just have to say when, <laughs> and I'll strangle you in your sleep. <laughs> this is the last episode. Of Kyle. <laughs> yeah. Now it's just Kyle, Kyle and the machine. Right? Is that Kyle what you want? Kyle and the machine. Oh, Kyle and Dave vs. the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. You know, Dave, uh, this week I get to talk to you about a new sponsor, and this is the Business Council of Alberta, specifically their podcast called Alberta Better. 
Alberta Better explores how we, and again, this is the royal we, how we co-create a society where everyone can thrive through the lens of business. Dave, have you ever wondered what it takes to create a good life in an equally good society, one where people, business, and the environment can flourish? No. Yes. <laughs> well, we, well, well, we wondered that too. Alberta Better is a journey to understand what it takes to create a good life here in Alberta and how we, as Albertans, businesses, and governments, can change our society so that everyone prospers. Except for Dave. He, uh, he's too cynical to join in this better life. I mean, I have opinions. Would, would you like... Oh, I know you have opinions, <laughs> Would you like Dave. to hear my opinions? This, this <laughs> podcast shows that you have nothing but opinions. I didn't come here for a conversation. I just came here to tell you that you're wrong, Kyle. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to go to a symposium one day about, uh, you know, trying to make the world a better place. And then you can just stand up uh, at the end during the Q&A period and be like, yeah, this is more of a comment than a question. Uh, you're all wrong and everything sucks. I don't know why I wasn't invited <laughs> up there, but uh, I'm just going to let you all know you've wasted two hours of my time and right. you're welcome. Uh, well, I get to talk about Rumi, Kyle, Rumi. Mm. And even though it's, wait, when is this coming? It's sweltering today at the day of this uh, recording, but... Yes, on the ship right now, it feels like it's 40 degrees outside, beating in through my windows. I told you to bring the AC, but every Calgarian's got to talk about how it's only one week a year. One week. Bullshit. But with warmer weather... <laughs> Listen, we only have to get fired into the sun once a, <laughs> once a year. What's the big deal? With warmer weather comes yard work, if you own a home. Mm. That's why I live in a condo. And there's a lot of it. You got to prune your trees. You got to prune your shrubs. No, I did that wrong. You got to prune your trees and shrubs. You got to clean your eaves troughs. Replace those drafty windows you noticed over the winter. Or you can call Rumi to take care of all your outdoor and indoor spring home maintenance. I just realized it's not, it's not spring anymore. All your outdoor and indoor spring home maintenance while you fire up the barbecue and relax. Visit Rumi.ca, that's R-U-M-I dot C-A, or call 1-844-777-7864 and let Rumi's trusted local experts take care of your yard. So all you have to do, Kyle, is enjoy it. Can I just make a pitch here for people that, that are listening? Uh, as someone who does live in a place that has a yard, surrounded by other places that have yards, Pruning your shrubs and your trees, that's great. Do that whenever you want. The people who decide that they're going to mow their lawn at 7 a.m. on a Saturday can go fuck themselves <laughs> because that's just never a cool thing you to do. You should just drop off a push mower in, on their like front door, you know, give them a subtle hint. <laughs> One of those mechanical yeah. ones that like, just spin as you push. Yeah, once yeah. they get them going, you know, they, they go. That, that could be said about a lot of things, Dave. Well... That was a good brisk 90 minutes that we just uh, got to sit uh, with each other here on the couch. But Matthew, uh, let's jump into it a little bit more. Like, what about this movie do you like? I love the unexpected nature of this movie. I think it's funny. I think back a lot to the first time I watched it. And it was one of those movies where I, I feel like it's happened two or three times where I think I'm watching something and I am taken by surprise. Like I, I've completely misun misunderstood the concept of the project, mm -hmm. and I think I spent the first chunk of this movie genuinely believing it was supernatural, and that 
Harold was actually killing himself and unable to die. Like I do right, believe right. that's what I thought for a lot of this movie. Um, and then obviously the, the friendship uh, between Harold and Maude and, and the several twists that come later without being too spoilery. But um, yeah, it's just, it's unexpected while simultaneously being very sad and very poignant and also lovely. Like it's just mm-hmm. sweet, which I, you know, the perfect combination of things. Dave, I think your perspective is going to be interesting. I've seen this multiple times as well. So as a, like a first time viewer of this movie, what were your immediate thoughts? Yeah, I think this is uh, probably going to be my favorite movie of 1971. Whoa. I, know. I don't Ooh. know. I don't know what happened. That's actually surprising only because I was a hundred percent convinced you were going to hate this movie. What's, like, what's the I'm hate? not even joking. I, like thought you were going to hate it. The opening scene is one of the craziest and most hilarious. Like, so to Matthew, like you start and, and I'm just like, Oh my God, he just fucking killed himself. And then the mom comes <laughs> in, you I was howling. I'm like, Oh my God, right. he's just being an <laughs> asshole. And I was like, I'm yeah, yeah. going to love this movie because, uh, this is absurd. Um, I mean, he's creepy, but, uh, it's fun. And, sure. Uh, it is a bit dated, as we'll get into. Um, but when Ruth comes out, when Maud comes out, oh my God, she's just this shining light, and she does things that I I want to steal a, a motorcycle from a cop. I mean, those are those mm. are great life goals. I steal a tree? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Why not? <laughs> there are a lot of trees in Calgary that need to be saved. I think uh, it's just a thing here. I thought it was incredible, and I will just add. Kyle, that as we mm-hmm. always seem to text each other on this couch, that mm-hmm. I thought that it gave me a good feeling that this is the kind of movie that Wes Anderson would have been inspired by. And it turns out I was correct because yes, uh, the, yeah. the writing anyways is something that mm-hmm. clearly isn't everything that he does. Right. Yeah. This, has, <laughs> this doesn't have any symmetry in it. So it's no, not like no, technically no. inspired by, by, by this. But yeah, like this is this was such an interesting watch for me here this time because like there's certain scenes that are emblazoned in my mind, like the whole escaping from the cop on his like little motorcycle. The first thing they see each other and like she's like and then she comes up behind him and trying to like whisper at him um yes, all the different yeah. deaths that that uh that harold and uh, does and stuff and then i also always forget somehow about some of the other subplots like the uh the uncle who's in the army with the missing arm oh, man the right. solution i think so uh, i think it's such a great visual gag you're probably the best visual gag of all time and and even like some of the other stuff with uh like the psychiatrist and him going to all those different places oh, always... for some reason i always forget that those scenes are, are in it i always keep going to all the other stuff so i've been doing a little bit of a deep dive here this week to put it mildly while this is generally liked and is a cult classic movie it bombed at the box office when it first oh, came wow. out in 19 19- like it flopped badly but there are some people who like really hate this movie, like really hate this movie. And I read through their criticism and there's certain things like, OK, like I can kind of get it. And there's other stuff that I don't know, I feel is a little bit overblown. Like some people like really have the the biggest problem with the mod character. We would call it like a, a, a manic pixie dream girl nowadays, except she's 80 years old. 
And I kind of get that criticism, but at the same time, I think there's a lot more depth that Ruth Gordon gives to that character. And there's more to her than just being like, I am just helping the male character out. I think that there is this beautiful story about someone being at the beginning of his life and her being at the end of hers and how they kind of cross paths and each give something to each other that again, yes, find sweet and a little bit romantic, of course, but never feels salacious to me in any way. Um, so anyway, yeah, I, I just think that there's so much to this movie uh, that I enjoy and that, that kind of really works for me. As far as like that kind of dark humor and stuff goes, are there any of those scenes, Matthew, that stand out to you that are like, these are like pinnacle? I mean, the the scene that has stuck in my brain for years has been... I- is it his mom on the phone and he's like setting himself on fire in the background right. like the it's day. just the, the but the fact that the suicide or the, the stage suicides are, are like they just become a a funny bit mm-hmm. like it's so so solid <laughs> um i always love i mean it's impossible to avoid talking about just how good the cat even soundtrack and score is in it and i always think of her playing if you want to sing out sing out on the piano it's just lovely i love that too i mean dave is there uh, again as a first viewer was there any of those scenes that specifically stood out to you at all well i don't know i mean i think they stand out all together if there's anybody listening is there is there anyone listening kyle in space nobody can hear you podcast it is uh, so impactful every time. The production value of his fake suicides is just fucking incredible. And uh, I know it's a fantasy for a film, but they are so, so perfect. And his mother's reactions are so deadpan that uh, it's just not, it's just so enjoyable and fun. It's just to a quick that criticism about Ruth Gordon. I For me, the redemption part was... Uh, the brief glimpse of her uh, concentration right. camp tattoo. Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's at that moment where I think the true sort of, yeah, philosophical, sociological depth of this writing really punch in the face because um, there's a moment leading up to that where you just think she's insane, which is fun too. Um, mm-hmm. But then you get that message that she just decided, you know, enough's enough. I'm going to embrace this last, what is it? Seven days, six days. And then- Yeah, something like that. And then you, and then I started remembering that she's been mentioning it since the first time they met, and I didn't really understand what she's talking about. But she's like, Sunday, I think that's the, see. I think that's honestly the beautiful part of this script is that it never explicitly says those things out to you, but it hits mm-hmm. you like a ton of bricks when those are kind of revealed to you, because you go through your mind again of like, oh yeah, she emigrated here. She talks about that. It talks about her upbringing here, why she stood up for all these other causes in the past, like. Uh, you know decades of her life um and then you see that glimpse of her arm it's like oh yeah okay i get it like i understand like all that fits into place uh really really quickly i think i read this in another review but i thought it was put so beautifully about how one of the themes in this movie too is about like if you really believe that you are living in a mad world and you should be a little bit mad yourself (laughs) uh Mm -hmm. and i think that that is kind of like the epitome of that mod character of being like, like, whatever, like, what do I care anymore? I am approaching 80 years old. I'm kind of done with this. I know. And, and in that case, she knows she's going to be dying. Uh, so yeah, why don't I just live my life to the absolute fullest and not care about anything, which I know is kind of like your eat, pray, love message too, a little bit, but at the same time, I don't know, this, this kind of resonates a little bit more with me. It's a post-war thing. And, um, you know, we see it crawling through that first 
cultural period post-war where it's controlled and, and very combative. But uh, I was telling mm -hmm. Kyle, so I've only been to Europe once, but of the three places we visited, Berlin was my favorite. And I have this anecdote. We found this crazy backwater um, vegan fucking bar, but we couldn't find it. It was like in an alley above a hotel. So by the time we got in, it was like 12 p.m. a.m., 12 a.m. And it's this mixture of like young hipsters and like well-to-do whatever. And then there's like 67-year-old women in full ball gowns that look like they just came out of the opera. Uh, my thought, I mean, this is unverifiable, I think, but my thought is that's a post-Cold War Berlin culture where they're just like, we just been through this for 40 fucking years. We need to embrace mm -hmm. what time we have left. And Berlin is like that. You see, you know, this brutalistic communist structures right beside this new gentrification of like ultra modern buildings. They still have the demarcation of the lines, even though they've torn down the wall. And I feel like this movie is kind of like that in that redemption part where it's exciting to see somebody that just stops giving a fuck. <laughs> stops giving a fuck. I like, I like people like that. I, I don't want to give a fuck. You anymore. are that person, Dave. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> The, the one last thing before we kind of go into some of the backstory of this movie, I've never really, I guess, done much of like a lookup of the creators of this movie before the, the machine gave us some of the information here today. I basically just Googled things. I have always felt that this movie does have a bit of a gay reading that you can read into it. Sometimes Dave says I overlooked this a little bit or put too much of this in. But I don't know, Matthew, do you, do you feel that same thing within this movie? I mean, yes, I do 100%. And I, I knew I, I knew it was going to come back to it again, but there is a, a Brian Fuller quote where he talks about pushing daisies being mm. queer, where it's not queer in, in any real sense on screen. But he's saying, you know, he tried to put queerness into all of his projects and networks always gun him down and studios always gun him down. Um, and he said when he made Pushing Daisies, he wanted to make it the kind of gay you can't scrub out. Mm. And that's, it Harold and Maude stinks of it. Like it's <laughs> it's the kind of gay you can't scrub out. It's queer in its essence and nature, and not necessarily in its text. But yeah, it it embraces a very different side of of um. And but I also think it's that it was part of what I feel like the anti-war movement was embracing like uh, a different kind of masculinity, a different kind of strength, mm -hmm. a different kind of uh, love and romance in a lot of different ways for this movie. That, that that's the biggest thing too like I've, I've always felt that and in this kind of watching it kind of really hit home with me yeah that feeling of being on the outside like harold is a character mm -hmm. that's like just does not feel part of society he doesn't want to go through the same thing he of course is acting out these like not really fantasies of suicide but like expressions of suicide mm -hmm. um which might allows him to kind of come to grips with as well because <laughs> it that's you know tied to a trauma looking at you is my trauma and Basically, this love being something that a lot of people don't like. I don't think it is a mistake that it is the priest who has such a strong reaction to their relationship. And I, I think a very funny scene, but at the same time, it's like your relationship makes me want to vomit. You know what I mean? Like there, there is that kind of layered into there that, you know, the LGBTQ plus demographic where they've been feeling, well, not, not even just now, but definitely back in the early 70s at that same time. Mm -hmm. Dave, do you have anything to add on to that at all? No, nice to... Being the resident straight person of the podcast. Yeah, you know, I, I do have my plaque here. No, I. <laughs> it's fascinating listening to you both talk about that and then reflecting and, and nodding because, yeah, 
that's uh, awesome. Because I mm-hmm. there's a tone, right? This, I, maybe this is why I picked up on a, a Wes Anderson feeling. It's not just the script and the way they interact with each other, but yeah, it's not geometric and it's not a, a painted scene, but framing, costume, the set design for this mansion, all of it is very uh, ornate and kind of intentional. And that the priest scene was so predatory and oh my God, it just goes so wild. I, I was cackling, but it's, it's so creepy, yeah. uh, even uh, without having a direct influence. But, you know, as we see, I, I don't know, um, Matthew, if you even catch Canadian news, but all of these atrocities, I'm, I can't laugh about it, but all these atrocities keep coming out about what the Catholic Church is capable of doing. In the lead up, which we normally make our guests, we used to make our guests suffer through, Kyle asked me, you know, whether we should be laughing at death or not. But this is the best part of comedy is we can look at something that's actually happening. In this case, either uh, a closeted priest or a pedophile or just a fucking sick asshole. And we can just laugh at him, even though the reality of that situation is uh, so gross. I just like that, you know, he fell in love with an eight-year-old woman. It's uh, exciting because he's a... Fuck, can I can I just ask norm. the question here then? So I'm I, when I go back to think about my very first time watching this, like again, understand it's a romance, and I can tell like quote unquote they're falling in love. I remember being like completely shocked when it's like, oh, they had sex. <laughs> like I yeah. wasn't really anticipating that to happen. No, I remember I remember it being like, oh, this is a nice friendship, and truly yeah. not even thinking about it in a romantic sense, and then. I think we, I think even the first time I watched it, I watched it in, in pieces. I can't remember. Mm. We may have, we may have not, but I remember walking away from, from watching it and being like, oh, it would have been, it would have been really nice if they just, like there was, it took me a, even personally a little bit yeah. of a, a minute to get over the, the jump there, but still took me back away. I, I felt like they were leading up to it. I, I don't know how I felt how I reacted to it when they just have her laying beside him. It was interesting to kind of cut into that moment with him blowing bubbles like a little kid. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah. there are, uh, there are tones that are through that, but the way they built their relationship, I thought, I, I don't think I was surprised. I was actually more just in for the ride. I'm glad they did it. I guess maybe I was just relieved that they didn't shy away from it. Um, mm. I was going to say, was it, would it have been nearly as effective of a story if they didn't like i don't i don't necessarily think it would have been yeah i don't know i you know the other thing i was thinking about is is it important for ruth to be 80 or can you know this plot work just by the essential let's say spirituality behind i have no idea but um you need well i I, I definitely think it needs to be an older person whether they have to be 80 or not i guess is up for debate and stuff but I do think that the central way that this movie works is that it's like young person and old person and them mm-hmm. kind of crossing paths. Cause it, in revisiting and, and doing a little bit of digging in my, on the movie myself, like it's a comparison that was like very much there. And I, I, I guess I just hadn't seen it laid out that way, but in the sense that, you know, his morbid fascination with death and in the same way that she has is just from the complete opposite place of hers where he's almost like bored with life and he doesn't see the point in life. And with her, she's like, I've seen and tasted death and I like, why not? Like, why are we, why are we not living life every day? Mm-hmm. That's absolutely full. And I think like seeing like, sure, I guess, you know, a younger person could have had that same experience of, of trauma, but I think you're right. I think it, it needs to be someone who's been on the other side of it. Yeah. Of, of life entirely 
Well, let's do some backstory here then. So Harold and Maude was released on December 20th, 1971. So great Christmas movie. Uh, to take everyone to. Uh, I wonder why it's cur- <laughs> <laughs> Right. Uh, it is rated 7.9 on IMDb. It has a 62 on Metacritic. And then over on Rotten Tomatoes, from 45 critics, it's at 84%. From 50,000 plus users, it's at 93%. So definitely you can tell that the uh, the cult uh, classic is there for people uh, available on DVD and Blu-ray you can also buy or rent it on iTunes you can also buy or rent it on YouTube uh, at least here in Canada you cannot stream it anywhere but you can you know, buy or rent it from those other places its budget was 1.3 million dollars is what I read and uh, I could not find anywhere to find out where or how much money it actually made all I know is that yeah, it flopped and it flopped hard. I did come across an article, though, that said that it had reached cult status by the early 80s. So in 1983 is when it finally made a profit. So it only took 12 years for it to actually make a profit. Uh, its plot description is young, rich and obsessed with death. Harold finds himself changed forever when he meets lively septuagenarian Maud at a funeral. Uh, it stars Bud Court as Harold, Ruth Gordon as Maud, Vivian Pickles as Mrs. Chasen, and then Charles Tyner as Uncle Victor. Uh, anything we want to say about those actors and actresses? Uh, sorry, I'm first of all, I'm giggling because my son uh, loves to sing when he takes a shower, and so you're gonna get you're gonna get a lot of post processing. Sure. This is gonna be fucking great. I can't wait great. to hear you complain about that. Um, well, the quick one, Bud Court, uh, there's a reason why he didn't have much of a career because he had a huge car accident and he had to reconstruct his face, which is mm-hmm. fucking dark. Yeah. So, it was still a few years after, but yeah, apparently drove into an abandoned car and uh, Whoa. everything's gone. So, they had to rebuild him and I think it was years because uh, this is 1970, 1978 or 79. So, this would have been a pretty big medical operation before he could kind of get out of that. So, he doesn't really have a lot of credits. Uh, uh, we've actually already seen a movie with him in it, Dave. Do you, do you, do you see which one? Uh, hold on. He's in Dogma. Oh, he was in Dogma? I have... Uh, yeah. He was in Steve Zizou. Which one? Who is he in Dogma? He is the person laying in a bed. He's in <laughs> it for like 30 seconds. Like, he's not in the movie very... He's literally laying on a bed for 30 seconds. Oh, well, I missed that um, credit. Anyways. Yeah. <laughs> Ruth, I just, I mean, she's fascinating. I, she was born in the 19th century. So, I think that's cool. 1896. Uh, I think mm-hmm. at the time of shooting this, she was 76 or something like that. Or so, she's pretty much playing herself. She has a fascinating life. The one thing that I thought was weird is that uh, when she started getting into films and she was doing pretty well, uh, she apparently intentionally had a operation to break her legs and reform them to get rid of her bow-leggedness so that she would be uh, ready to get more parts. <laughs> so, okay. that's, uh, that's some commitment to the craft. Matthew, how often do you ask your actors to break their legs? <laughs> Oh, uh, well, we just did a leg breaking the other day, right. um, but, you know, jury's out on if they're going to be ready for the part, so we'll see. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. Yeah, she's got Oscars for, uh, I think, writing. She's she's done everything. She's a fascinating, fascinating character, so I don't know how much we want to get into it. The one thing we will joke about, Kyle, is uh, in one of our video reviews, you brought up Every way, Which Way But Loose, and she yeah, is and in, in that, that yeah. movie with Clint. Yes. 
Yeah. So and an, and an orangutan. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, she wrote Adam's Rib, and uh, it's that's a that's a thing. Wild. Man. I know she's had a wild career. Uh, it's one of those things like this can't possibly be all one person who did this. <laughs> yeah. I always find it fascinating though when it's when you have an actress who is known for two like equally iconic roles, but like somehow Maud still tops Rosemary's Baby. So like mm. fascinating. Oh, Vivian Pickles. We've seen three movies uh, that she's in this I, year. I know. And again, one of those things like, oh, she must have been in the background because I don't remember her being yeah, in Nicholas and Alexandra. But... Nicholas Alexandra, Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And this is fascinating. But she's predominantly a, a British television, I think, and film actress. Yeah. So not a lot of stuff that we know about. Cyril Cusack turned into a uh, conservative Catholic asshole, so we'll skip him. But he's apparently one of the greatest Irish actors of all time. And then we okay. get into uh, Colin Higgins and Hal Ashby. So, yeah. do you want right. me? Or I'll, I can step aside and you can, you can spit no, at the mic a bit. I have, yeah. <laughs> I have it written down here. Uh, so, yeah, written by Colin Higgins, directed by Hal Ashby. So, I think we do need to start with Colin Higgins first. So, very, very quickly. Grows up in a military family. Finds himself at Stanford University on a scholarship, which I don't know what the scholarship was for. Doesn't matter. He loses it after a year. Because uh, as per his quote, he became obsessed with theater. So he moves over to New York, hangs out outside the actor's studio to try and find acting work and doesn't. So what he decides to then do is become an ABC page and then loses all hope that he'll ever become an actor, which I don't know if that's what happens when you become a page or, or not, but I, I guess. So he quits. And of course, what's your next step is to join the army. So that's what he does. He shift overseas, but doesn't really do combat. He's basically working on the Stars and Stripes Army newspaper. Discharged from the army in 65, which is probably good because Vietnam was only getting worse at that point. Goes back to Stanford, gets a creative writing degree, and then on a lark decides to go and take a trip to Montreal for Expo 67. Uh, and it's here where he sees a film exhibit and becomes super inspired and is like, oh, maybe instead of theater, I should do movies. And so decides to go to UCLA to get a master's in fine arts. And his master's thesis would eventually or would eventually return into Harold and Maude. That is what his master's thesis was. Uh, this is, I find, the most wild part because there's a lot of like dot, dot, dot. This does not explain a lot, but. He gets his master's, decides to take a job as a chauffeur, chauffeur and pool cleaner for a very wealthy family. Who hasn't hoped to be the pool boy. And maybe that was strategic because he's able to meet this film producer by the name of Ed Lewis, who takes this idea to Paramount and he sells it. That's how he gets Harold and Maude made, is be, becoming a pool cleaner. Higgins really wants to direct this movie himself, and Paramount gives him $7,000 to shoot it, and he, they do not like it at all. So he doesn't get to direct this movie. They give it to Hal Ashby instead. Now, this is kind of going off of what we were talking about here before, because before we get to Hal Ashby, I do think it's important to know that Higgins was gay and openly so for most of his life. And so with the giving of this movie, Higgins would also eventually get to direct movies. Uh, specifically, I want to call out Nine to Five and The Best Little Whorehouse in Texas are some of his directing things. Um, and I'm a huge Nine to Five fan. So this is just like right up my alley. Hal Ashby, by all accounts, is kind of an asshole, I think, kind of in life, just reading between the lines. But regardless, uh, what I read is that you could say that he lived a bohemian lifestyle, which basically just means that by the time he was 21, he had already been married and divorced twice. 
fun for him. I will say that maybe some of this came from some trauma because his father did commit suicide when he was 12 years old. So there's some stuff there in this background. Uh, but he eventually goes through this apprenticeship as a film editor, is given more assignments, gets an Academy Award nomination for this Norman Jewison movie called The Russians Are Coming, The Russians Are Coming, and then actually wins the Oscar a couple years later for In the Heat of the Night. So at the urging of Jewison, Ashby directs his first film called The Landlord in 1970, gets pretty decent reviews. This would be his second film. And then um, if, if you do look at his like IMDb page, I think it's kind of wild because he has this amazing 70s and really shitty 80s. Like it's such a stark contrast because the 70s are filled with all of these either critical or cult successes. So you have things like Harold and Maude. And then after that, The Last Detail, which is one of the early um, Jack Nicholson movies, Shampoo with Warren Beatty, Bound for Glory. Uh, which is the John Carradine movie, uh, Coming Home, which is the one that John Voight wins Best Actor for, uh, and then Being There, uh, which is like a huge movie uh, at the end of the 70s. And then not a single movie he makes in the 80s, I think, gets above like a 2.9 out of 5 on any service I've gone to. Like, nobody likes these movies. Um, so I don't know what happened. Like, basically, it's like he went to 79, and then nothing after that was good. Um, I think very tragically, though, both men would die in the same year, 1988. So Higgins passed away from AIDS, Ashby from pancreatic cancer. As far as the shoot goes, everything kind of went well. They enjoyed working with each other. There's no like on, on, on set fights. Things apparently went smoothly. The only little trivia point I'm going to add into here is talking about the soundtrack again and how like distinctive that Cat Stevens soundtrack is. Does anyone here know who the original person they asked was? Wasn't it Elton John? It was Elton John. So they got they had Elton John actually signed and he was going to do it. And then for whatever reason, he had to drop out. And then he said, no, he should get Cat Stevens. And that's mm-hmm. how Cat Stevens got hired on to do this. Uh, most of the music had been written beforehand, but don't be shy. And if you want to sing out, sing out. We're composed specifically uh, for this movie. And then kind of the rest is history. So that's kind of a little <laughs> backstory of, of this movie and kind of how it got made. But I want to jump into that final fake out. So at the very, very end, you know, you see Harold like speeding away in his car and goes over the cliff. And then there's finally it'll pan back up and see, Oh, it's like this one more time where it looks like he's killed himself, but actually hasn't killed himself. Uh, Matthew though, I want to know, how do you read that last scene? What are we supposed to take away from that? I mean, I, it, what is this movie? If not for 90 minutes of building to what we think is going to be the actual time he killed himself. Right. Yeah. Right. So uh, it's in a weird way, very good at like distracting you with a shiny object in their left hand and, and being like, Oh, you completely forgot about our right hand. Um, it's, and then to have him strutting away, plucking out, you know, if you want to sing out, sing out. I think it's just for an audience member, it's, it's like a psych out. It's a sigh of relief. It's simultaneously very sad. Uh, it's, yeah, it's just like kind of a bit of a whirlwind of emotion there with, with what the whole film has built up to. And it, it kind of hits the nail on the head really well. I, that's what I always find so great about this movie is that, even, again, even though I've seen it a, a bunch of times here now, and I know what the ending is, there's something about that that is this really cool magic trick that I find, which is that 
We have seen him do these fake suicides over and over and over again. And the final one is like, oh, no, no, this is the real one this time. And you still kind of get tricked. Um, or at the very least, I think that's what the movie is trying to do. But uh, Dave, right. do you think that is true? Were you were you faked out or did you know that he was faking it again? Well, it's yeah, it's hard to say if I knew anything, <laughs> if I know anything at all. You know what? For me, I read this movie as uh, a type of midlife crisis. And I guess what I mean by that is that we have, it's played by an 18-year-old, but we have this character that has to come to terms with the fact that life is, you know, that classic thing of what, what you make of it. And uh, it takes him first allowing this woman in and then uh, falling in love with her, who's doing the exact opposite of what he is. So, he has all this potential, he's got money, he's got everything, and he hates his life, presumably. Uh, and is actively trying to sabotage himself without actually killing himself, which is always a fun, it's always a fun paradox to live in. So the buildup at the end, I think, is an intentional question mark and shot as a question mark, which is, uh, you know, as you're as he's driving and then you see the car go off the cliff, I think the audience is forced to ask themselves, like, would I have killed myself? You know, what, is that something that I would just give up on because now I've actually lost everything? And instead, uh, when he's sort of, yeah, plucking away, pluckily, you get this ray of hope, which is something actually Kyle and I, we've talked a lot about, is kind of missing in modern film and TV culture, which is, uh, if not a positive hopeful ending, at least some sort of moral grounding where mm. um, there's a deeper question, you know, underneath the writing. So, you know, we shouldn't be, I think, we shouldn't be watching comedy just to see who can be the most stupid on a screen. And that kind of comedy makes me upset. But when you have a comedy where afterwards you're leaving and, you know, you're you're sick with laughter, but you have to think about, you know, who am I in relation to this character? And I think this movie is so successful at that because, you know, maybe I resonate with it because, you know, I've lived kind of both sides of this thing. I've definitely been a herald and I'm trying my best to be a mod now. And so when I watch okay. it, uh, you know, depicted on a screen, uh, it's exciting for me. But I also felt throughout the movie, uh, if I weren't in the position I'm in now, you know, sort of working through uh, life, I don't know, maybe I'd find this offensive. You know, if I've committed to like being his uncle and that regimen and dis uh, discipline and, and comparative or the mom, that uh, estate and uh, pr uh, prestige are my money are my values. And I think not just America, but North American culture tends to want us to worship that. This is going to be very challenging to watch because you're going to think this kid is just a suck and the woman is insane. But if you live somewhere with <laughs> this is offensive, if you have brains, Kyle, if, if you're smart. <laughs> no, tell me more. Tell me more. I don't know what this is. Yeah. Um, if you even, have, well, if you have this part of you, and I, th I hope every human being does this existential question of like, what is it really for? Then this, this movie is great for trying to, um, I don't know, answer that or or bring up the question that uh, maybe it's just about stealing trees. Maybe that's good enough, you know? <laughs> well, I, I think you're bringing up a few different things here that I just want to drill down onto just a little bit, which is, uh, again, something that we have been noticing a lot here in 1971 is that there is definitely this pushback against like the American ideal and the American dream. And why wouldn't there be when Vietnam is still raging on and civil rights are being pushed and all this stuff is going on? There's this maelstrom of stuff that's going on. 
so there there is kind of i think a very explicit like anti-war message that is going on inside of this movie so i want to get to that in a moment but because we have someone who is in the industry and this is maybe unfair for you matthew but that is something that dave and i bring up about how it feels and maybe this is not true but it feels that a lot of the entertainment that is outside of like comic book and like fast and the furious movies is very like dour and like depressing and there doesn't seem to be a lot of that herald and mod type stuff or maybe we're just not looking at the right stuff that could also be the the thing but do you feel that do you feel that there is this like this push for like films and tv to be i don't know as uh pessimistic (laughs) as it seems to all be i think that it's very prevalent this pessimism in in media but also i don't know if it's just my personality or uh, age or what i don't know but i it i actually started attributing it to the past you know five years the trump presidency into a global pandemic um but i am find myself more and more affected by media that is like light and hopeful and joyful um it is not a coincidence that the Paddington movies are praised out the wazoo. I think that's Um, true. Yeah. (laughs) I think that sometimes the thing that affects people the most is seeing kindness and a positive message and uh, something thoughtful and also well executed. Like something doesn't need to be dour and depressing to, to give you a, a powerful message. Yeah. Well, that's why I think, and, and Dave and I have talked about this off mic here before. I think that's why I did respond so much this year mm-hmm. to watching the first season of Ted Lasso, which mm-hmm. is another like positive thing. It's like uh, showing how like you don't have to have toxic masculinity in your life and still be like a man, uh, and that's right. fine. And maybe you know, ten years ago, that wouldn't have resonated with me all that much. But it seems like in this year, it's like yes, this is exactly what we need because I'm done with all this like the stuff that's around me in real life Mm -hmm. and in media that we're, that we're watching too. I mean, look, I love, I love horror movies more Mm -hmm. and more. Um, I think it's kind of a swinging pendulum. I love something that's a little dark and twisted, but also isn't Harold and Maude dark and twisted too. Like (laughs) it's, it's, it's both things. And I think that that's kind of the, the line that I enjoy straddling with, with media. It's just life, right? I mean, it can be dark and dour and depressing, but it doesn't live in that space forever. Horror is an interesting one to bring up here, and I'm going to throw Dave under the bus here a little bit because he, you have said, Dave, that you don't like horror movies yeah. as kind of a, a flat statement. It's not throwing me under the bus. It's just stating a fact. <laughs> That's yeah. fact. But what what I enjoy about horror movies is that fact that I am actually, let me step back, the good horror movies, in my opinion, the good horror movies are the ones where I am so happy when you know, the killer doesn't win. Uh, you right. know, I'm, I'm rooting for the quote unquote, good people in the story to, to, to win out. And I'm not that big of a fan when it's like, oh, we're just watching people get cut up here and like ever in gruesome ways. That's never really right. <laughs> entertained me or really thrilled me all that much. So I think there actually is an interesting like comparison that can be made against horror movies and comedy. Both are wanting you to have this like expression, horror and like laughter. Uh, right. But yeah, you can do that in in really provocative ways and that pushes pushes things forward. I think a very common thing too in a lot of comedies is to the the ending, the final twist is usually like an oh shit moment. Like it's yeah. it's usually like 
oh, you know, you thought you were out of the woods, but surprise, this other thing that you didn't expect, like that this other complication is, mm-hmm. oh shit, it's popped up out of nowhere. Um, and I think that can be true in horror too, where, you know, you think the killer's dead and there's the pop-up and whatever the twist. I think Harold and Mog gives that, that moment a little bit more room to breathe and sure. and has that twist moment be more of a reveal of character than anything else. And um, then we kind of get to sit with it at the end of the movie. But, you know, as opposed to someone who is brand new, I gave. I need you to know. I hated horror for a really long time. Like I hated it, hated it, hated it, hated it. Um, and recently, I've just become very, very into it and obsessive in a lot of ways. But I just made my good friend watch The Babadook for the first time, and that's the movie that has like a very hopeful, yeah. almost almost joyful ending. Um, and it's not because like the monster is defeated. It it just kind of contextualizes. Um, emotionally what the movie is and, and I think it, it sticks an emotional landing that is like very solid but all this to say like yeah I think with comedy you're right like I don't want to see someone be a be an idiot for two hours and that be the whole point of the movie if, if you do you can watch Million Dollar Duck no, which is awful fun, and no just, one should yeah. watch it <laughs> no, no. we'll put a veto on. I, maybe uh, let me ask you this uh, Matthew like uh, from a writing perspective then I mean, how how intentional, how structured does a writer have to be to maintain control of this thing we're talking about philosophically? So, how do you not get carried away in the one-upsmanship that I think is taking over Hollywood and Netflix and all this stuff where become almost a competition of, oh, well, I have a slasher flick. Well, look how many more people I can kill in this fucking thing in 90 minutes. Or if it's comedy, it's like, well, look, look how many more times I can punch a guy in the balls because it's funny. Like, it's just... It's become so reductive and I suspect it's not the writer's fault because to be a writer, you have to be a craftsperson. You have to, you know, be dedicated to a lifestyle. So wherever it breaks Mm -hmm. down uh, in the machine. Are you talking to me? But as a writer, you know, and with the writers, I'm sure that, you know, is this something that comes up a lot? (laughs) Is it something that's in the consciousness or is it more reflective? You know, the, the crap that we're seeing in modern film, is that just more reflective of what's going on? in the world or I mean, it's it's getting to the point where you know Kyle and I have a, a repetitive discussion every time we watch a new movie it's hard to watch one where you just enjoy for the sake of watching a film anymore yeah, yeah I don't know I think like the thing that I bump up against with a lot of movies and it's it's not a rule but um it kind of feels like it sometimes as far as like one upsmanship goes of course like industry-wide genre-wide like someone wants the next comedy's got to be bigger the next comedy's got to be funnier the next horror movie's got to be slashier um but i was like bumped up against sequels for that exact reason where it's like you know you can have a perfectly great i like love scream that's one of my favorite movies then scream two they up the body count scream three they up the body counts then it keeps going but i feel like with horror i bumped up against sequels really strongly from a young age because that's someone who didn't even like horror then you know if you lose plot you don't they don't care so much about characters they'll kill off main characters like um in a way that i think is different than comedy but was, as far as like writing off you know protagonists and and not having them back for sequels with horror i think like it, that's just what it felt like. It's like let's rehash the thing that that we've already done before and just make it better. But um, big, big, big quotes around better um, by making it louder and bloodier or funnier or whatever it is. But as far as like the industry goes, I think that you're you're right. I think that everyone's constantly keeping an eye on the other thing. 
I, I think that that's why projects like Herald and Mod and, and you know, I, I can harken back to like six other things that, that we've mentioned already, mm-hmm. but like that's why those kind of stand out because those don't feel like, I mean, pick one other thing that feels like Herald and Mod. I, I can't. Yeah, really. it's hard. I know this is going down a little bit of a rabbit hole here, but I know why it doesn't happen in Hollywood and audiences usually expect a sequel to be bigger, badder, whatever it happens to be. He's not the best person to use an example anymore based on his behavior. But there was something that Joss Whedon said years ago that I actually did like. Wouldn't it be cool if a big budget franchise, instead of trying to get bigger, every movie went smaller every movie? And I think that would be such an interesting way to go. And I know, again, why it doesn't happen. But uh, if anyone ever watches the original Planet of the Apes movies, like from the 60s into the early 70s, they kind of do that. They got less and less money for budget, every one of those. And so by the end of it, it's just like a philosophical discussion between two characters is basically what the last movie is with very little action. And there's something about that that I kind of love. Like, not all those movies are good, but... At the very least, I'm like, well, I kind of respect that you're trying to do something different. That's that's kind mm. of interesting and neat. <laughs> Pre-podcast. Two apes on a mic. Yeah. We mentioned about the anti-warness of this movie. And I mean, there's, a, yeah, of course, the explicit, like, very obvious one when he goes off on that. He's like, I get to kill people, which I always love that scene. There is a moment, though, at the very beginning where his uncle goes to this picture. He's like, you could be a Nathan Hale. And I am not an American, so I didn't know who Nathan Hale was. Matthew, do you know who Nathan Hale is? No. Okay. No, no. So, the he well, it was the Revolutionary War. Did you look this up, Dave? No, I didn't, okay. uh, so, yeah, I didn't I, care I'm enough. Pretty, yeah, sorry. I'm pretty sure it was the Revolutionary War where he was an American... You know, put on disguise, uh, you know, uh, surreptitiously went into like the British camp and it was eventually found out and killed. He was like 22 years old. He was pretty young. Uh, his famous quote is that my only regret is that I only have one life to lose for my country. Wow. That, that was his like last words. Apparently, yeah. like I sometimes question to, like yeah. the last words, <laughs> but apparently those are the last words that he said. Um, so I think that's just a, such an interesting thing. So it's like, oh, Harold is also this young person. And that's kind of what the uncle is asking him to do, really. is like, go die for your country. You'll, you'll be considered a hero. Be like this person over here. And, and Harold basically rejecting that whole premise uh, by the end of it. And understand, like, this isn't, we don't need to do this anymore. And I also think, like, the Sunflower character is interesting. It's like, okay, yeah, kind of a bogus first name, but whatever. But she actually has some really interesting things to say about, like, there's all this stuff going on and don't you know and like don't you care i don't know I, I think there's something to that that there's this consistent anti-war message without ever saying the word vietnam in this movie which i think is also an interesting choice i mean i, I just think it's the last words of nathan hale being about like i'm i only have one life to give my country it's like a, a kind of brilliant parallel to the message of the entire movie of only having one life and mm-hmm. living it to the fullest and and this is stark contrast in in the messaging there being like don't you want to give your life up to something else mm-hmm. to something bigger and greater instead of just fake killing yourself throughout the movie yeah, yeah. exactly <laughs> when i hear that i start thinking about uh kind of like MAGA, this, what we're doing right now with nationalism. And it's, I think, maybe less to do specifically with war 
for the sake of war, but maybe what America is going through, like they are now, is they've lost their identity. And he brings up, oh, we, remember when the Germans, the Krauts were really good bad guys right, and we right. knew what we were fighting, not like these current wars where nobody knows what they're doing and we're, you know, getting our ass kicked. You know, this idea of defining American culture as, as winning, as being stronger, more manly, all this kind of bullshit. Um, I think that's, for me, was the bigger struggle than anti-war itself. I mean, the not, not no, I shouldn't say that. I mean, it's definitely anti-war. Uh, but there's something, I think, uh, sort of bubbling underneath where it's also this loss of identity. Of, yeah, what are you actually dying for? And I also thought just when you brought up the scene where he's uh, acting the psychopath, what a fascinating sort of uh, counterpoint to him being macabre, faking his own death. But then when he actually says violent things, it's quite stunning on the film. And the mm -hmm. uncle's like, what the fuck is wrong with you? And he's like, well, can I just I gut him and yeah. have his shrunken well, I think it's really it's interesting, though, that the uncle, it takes a while for the uncle to get that reaction, though. Because yeah, he's like, I can bayonet him. He's like, yeah, you can. It's great. <laughs> I'm like, okay. Like, <laughs> he keeps souvenirs. Like, oh, wait a second. Why, why do you want a souvenir? And then it just... But that's, you know, and I think that's the thing, though. It's fascinating to to have a script where it's so openly challenging, not just one thing, but American culture in general. I'm, you know, even with the car, you know, mm -hmm. buying yeah. a hearse is great. And then the mom, <laughs> you know, flipping into a Jaguar, which is at the time, right? Like this, the American dream, living in a mansion and having a sports car. And he just turns it back into a hearse. Fucking incredible. <laughs> well, I, I, what I also think is really fascinating too, and maybe this is because I'm a dummy, I think that there's sometimes this narrative that gets brought out about how it's been really the last 15 years that people have become like, quote unquote, like woke and understand like what's really happening mm -hmm. in society. And yet in this movie, we're talking about like prisons overflowing and the mistreatment of animals in zoos. And we're talking about mm -hmm. all these things that are like big things like, oh, no, no, no. Like we've always known this. And this movie was even like talking about this. Like we don't have any excuse for, you know, dragging our heels with with trying to push for change. It's just, you know, you become complacent over time so yeah i don't know i keep getting confronted by that in this in the early 70s about like oh gosh like they're talking about like really uh important things that no one cared about and did anything about well dave earlier you brought up a point where, where and i i i think we got we jumped right into like the the idea of like the writing but um you were saying that you know this movie can be very critical of, of certain kinds of people right like the aggressive hyper masculine I mean, we didn't say it, but Trumpy kinds of people. Um, but, uh, and you were saying, I understand why some people didn't like it. I understand why some people, you know, questioned a lot of ways of life. I understand. But I also, I mean, to look at a movie like this, I, I'm, I wonder how many people watch it and realize that they are even the people that the movie is criticizing or, right. or, you know, or if they're even being criticized. It's, it's fantastical and the movie is, silly at times it could be quirky and i feel like maybe some people don't walk away from it thinking yeah. you know i live a life that 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 harold and maude wouldn't approve of but um I, yeah i don't know I, I think that's true of a lot of media that we see like you know i know so many people who watch very very popular shows where at their core it's about racism or poverty or you know and it's or it criticizes the rich and um they don't really take those don't pick up parts away from it oh yeah like i mean i have seen twitter threads of and i lose my mind because it's like whether or not you like the new series or not but it's like i don't like uh, star trek talking about like racism in these shows I'm like 
have you ever watched a season of Star Trek? <laughs> like, that's literally the whole thing. Like, of that show. Yeah, right. Uh, I mm-hmm. just watched that Bo Burnham special, and that's all I could think mm-hmm. about watching that thing. Is like, yeah, like the the white girl Instagram. Is any Caucasian female watching this realizing that they're the butt of this joke and suddenly deleting right. their profile, or you know, are they you know, did they miss it? And I don't know. I can't answer those questions. Uh, um, right. But it is fascinating. I mean, this is the power of entertainment. I think, and uh, and art criticism, and and you know, this podcast is. Uh, <laughs> We ask, we're very important. Yes, we're very we're important. We're trying to be. Um, <laughs> yeah, getting this in the public discourse. And uh, that's that's what I think this movie so can be. It is a great uh, modifier. Can be so successful at is, you know, we can have uh, three nerds sit down and uh, dissect this on an existential level, political level, experiential mm-hmm. level. Or as you brought up, someone might watch this and be like, my wife was kind of peeking. Uh, this is how I know this movie's good because normally the moment I turn on something that's 1970, anything, she actually physically leaves the room. Right. <laughs> because she's not fully paying attention, uh, she eventually did leave and then she asked me what happened in it because I was like laughing <laughs> and she's like, did the guy die? Like she actually saw that part where the car flips over. Mm-hmm. But it resonates with her. You know, it's it's fascinating to watch these little interactions. Uh, but in her mind, she only remembered that he tried to kill himself. It was gruesome. And in the end, a car fell over a cliff. Those right. are the things that stood out as she was half paying attention. If I could cajole her into sitting down and watching the whole thing, it would be fascinating to see if uh, she would care about it as much as me. I suspect not. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why I hang out with Kyle so much. Uh, but <laughs> on the flip side, she watches shows that uh, I'm physically upset about <laughs> so who am i to judge i don't know um are you gonna name names or like what what, what yeah shows? i kind of want to know which show. uh no i'm not going to yeah <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah well, there's one last thing i just want to do as far as a comparison goes um and this is really the one thing that i really pulled out this last time i watched it's like oh there's a really interesting comparison to make between harold's mother and the mod character specifically mm-hmm. and the way they're portrayed because the mother is also like very like independent woman like um living presumably. her best life uh presumably but i mean the biggest thing that you can see is that she is telling harold how to live his life constantly and mod is the exact opposite. like just do whatever you want and that's why it's so hard for him to like sing for the first time it's like if you want to do a cartwheel do a cartwheel i don't care it's, he's been dictated to for so long that he doesn't even know how to to act like his real self, which is also kind of, I think, the gay reading you can put into this. Um, there's often those talks about being closeted for so long, so you don't really know what your real self is uh, until much later in life um, and have to go through, quote unquote, like puberty later in life because you just never had the opportunity to be yourself uh, when everyone else was being themselves. So I don't know. That's kind of what I like, uh, what I'm reading into that that kind of relationship a little bit more. I 100% agree. I think that, that, uh, yeah, Maude is not necessarily like a bad influence so much as right. she's kind of just like breaking the chains of what he's kind of been, the, whatever boxes his family has continuously pushed him into. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just getting this thought. It's great that this movie is also attacking helicopter parenting before that becomes a meme because that's supposed <laughs> right. to be a Gen X problem, but this is clearly existing yeah. even in the boomer era so yeah. like her filling out that dating profile Amazing. is so perfect to me it's like 
when she gets caught up yeah well she gets caught up and it's like well no i don't like that it's like she's just filling it out for herself then at that point which is which is great we're done here all right well the machine has said that we do have to wrap this up but uh we have to do a couple other things first uh we're gonna go to critics choice this is where we can't wait because i read what your hero said about this so this is gonna be awesome well we'll see A couple of critics from the time period and what they thought of this movie. So we're picking once again, Roger Ebert and Pauline Kael. Uh, Roger Ebert did not like this movie. He did not like this movie at all. And so this is what he writes in part. He says, and so what we get finally is a movie of attitudes. Harold is death, Maud life, and they managed to make the two seem so similar that life's hardly worth the extra bother. The visual style makes everyone look fresh from the wax museum, and all the movie lacks is a lot of day-old gardenias and lilies and roses in the lobby, filling the place with a cloying sweet smell. Nothing more to report today. Harold doesn't even make pallbearer. In the review itself, there's a lot of how annoying he finds the Harold character, and that's like his main gripe is like, he is like super annoying and then Maud seems to be like this like magic woman who comes into his life but anyways that's what roger ebert thought i don't know if anyone has any rebuttals that they want to throw at uh though his way harold is um, annoying he's supposed to be but yeah that's, that's what i mean like he's <laughs> he's growing there's a character growth that happens there pauline kale uh is basically medium on the movie although she wrote this a few years after the movie came out so her take is this In this satirical, whimsical, romantic comedy directed by Hal Ashby from a script by Colin Higgins, Harold reaches out by falling in love with Maude, and their love is consummated on the eve of her 80th birthday. Many young moviegoers have returned to this eccentric film repeatedly. In 1974, one 22-year-old claimed to have seen it 138 times. Maybe this is partly because of its mixture of the maudlin and the highly sophisticated. The message is not very different from that of Hello Dolly or Mame, But Harold's flaccid asexuality, he's like a sickly infant, a limp, earthbound Peter Pan, and Maude's advanced stage of pixiness give the message a special freaky quality. Uh, And the film has been made with considerable wit and skill. The early scenes in which Harold tries out various gruesome methods of suicide without scaring his unflappable mother have a stylized humor. But Ashby has directed us eccentrically. The actors are often seen at great distance, and the dialogue reaches us from a distance too. The sound level varies as so much that we keep losing the voices, and Harold's lines often fade away. So hers was like, yeah, there's some funny bits in this, uh, but there's actually some technical things that she just <laughs> goes off on about the look and, and the sound mixing of the movie is basically her thing. So your favorite critic, Dave, what do you have to say about that? Uh, you know, it's funny. I was... In preparation for today, I was thinking about how I would rate this and <laughs> and I was thinking, I can't give it a five because of how it's shot. And uh, <laughs> I I, uh, I feel like Pauline Kale is like my spirit guide. Uh, mm-hmm. I had never even heard of her before we got to this season and uh, she's awesome. So I, I'm just more she happy like that anything. you, that's her, that's a thing. you she, got let she, down she, by your, uh, your hero. Oh, that's it's all right. Awesome. <laughs> everyone, not everyone can you know hit home runs every single time, Dave. It's okay. Uh, okay, well that's what the critics thought. So that means that we should a- ask, I'm sorry, ask our two most important questions that we ask every time. Does this hold up, and is it still culturally relevant? How would you answer those two questions, Matthew? Um, well, as far as holding up, I I think that its messaging is still relevant. I think that it's uh, there's nothing about it that I was particularly cringy at um or necessarily nothing i cringed at more than the first time i watched it you know (laughs) Mm -hmm. i feel like maybe you're intended to cringe at right 
And uh, yeah, I, as far as cultural relevance goes, I think, you know, like you were saying, like we, we're kind of in this phase of, of wokeness, but, you know, these ideas and these uh, anti-establishment kind of rally cries have been around for a very long time. And I'm sure that many people who probably watch Harold and Maul the first time now would maybe turn their nose up at it, not mm-hmm. seeing the same exact parallel today, but people were turning their nose up at it in the 70s too. So, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, there you go. Uh, how about you, Dave? Does it hold up and is it still culturally relevant? Yeah, I think so. Uh, I, we're suckers because I, I, uh, I'm i I'm a Gen Xer. So the tone of a 70s film. I am not. I should just point out, doesn't, by the uh, way. <laughs> doesn't push me back that much. But as we've discussed 71, it is a bit of a gap because uh, movies in the 70s were shot in the 70s. So, you know, film grain, lighting, all that stuff was not as quote unquote evolved as movies look today. But that being said, I, I mean, I think not just thematically, I think the performances, particularly Ruth, just transcend like a, like a particular decade or a style of acting. She's literally lighting up every part that mm-hmm. she's in. I don't know. I'm going to tell everybody I know, whoever asks, which is nobody, uh, what movie from 1971 that they absolutely have to watch. And uh, I will suggest this one, and then I will wait to evaluate their reply uh, as to whether we'll still be friends or not. So, uh, it's going to be, uh, this is a marker for me. I I really like this movie, so I'm going to say yes to both. Uh, yeah. I, I like the idea, though. It's like, why did you stop being friends with Dave? Because I didn't like Harold and Maude. <laughs> That's the answer. Well, um, yeah. I, I can't believe I didn't bring this up in the entire episode. So I'm also answering yes to both of those questions. But So not entirely, but I think why I love this movie, too, is that Maude reminds me a bit of my grandmother. <laughs> Oh, nice. So there's a bit of her in this, like my grandmother, like never wore a dress, always wore pants, like was always about like, you can do anything you want to do, like just go and do it. She worked in her small little town at the information center. You know, you drive up to and find information with the small little town you're driving through. This is like a big story in my family. And these punk teenagers came in this Oof. one day. She, like she was in her late seventies at this point. They're pompadours, and they start and they awesome. started ripping up the pamphlets of like <laughs> the like visitor center, and so she went over there and put them into like this hammerlock chokehold thing and threw them out of the information center. And I love that story so much because <laughs> there's a seventy year old woman who took on like some thirteen year olds and was like get out of my information center, and I feel like that's what uh, Maude would do if she was confronted she by some punk them. teens. So get out of my information <laughs> oh, <yeah>. center. <laughs> <laughs> this feels like the start of the next action franchise uh so that is what dave myself and matthew thought uh what do you think you can send any feedback to kylan dave vs the machine at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter or instagram with the handle kdvstm if you want to see the entire list of films we've watched and the ratings we've given you can go to our letterboxd page that's letterboxd.com kdvstm and if you want to support us monetarily so that we can continue doing this podcast and not usher in the apocalypse, you can go to our Patreon page. There's a link in the show notes of this episode. You can support for as low as a dollar a month. And of course, we do not want you to donate if it in any way causes you financial hardship. Something you can do for absolutely free is to leave a rating and review on whatever app you use for podcasts. As far as the rating goes, uh, Matthew, I'm so sorry. Uh, I say this every time and I do mean it from the bottom of my heart. I do want to know what you would rate this out of five, but your rating does not matter. So what, what would you rate this out of five? You know, I'm, I'm actually really glad it does not matter. I was, I was feeling an immense amount of pressure coming up. Uh, no, I would give it, uh, let's see. 
I, I find it funny because I feel like I, I, I just didn't super care about the technical things mm-hmm. uh, that were being discussed. I, I, I much more cared about like the writing and the score and the, I just, I would give it a, let's give it a 4.5. I'll give it a, that, that, that feels very solid to me. It's not a perfect film, but it's a damn good film. And I think a classic. How are you, Dave? Yeah, I, man. I always have to think about, especially with 1971, they don't come quick. Also, I think my highest rating so far has been like a three. No, you have given a four to, <laughs> I, to something. Uh, so. I do feel like I'm torn actually between a four and a four and a half. Um, I just don't want to be too optimistic because it ruins my rep for this uh, for this podcast. <laughs> yeah, you're a lovable curmudgeon. Come on. Uh, no, I I actually I really love this movie. I I had a great time watching it, and I would absolutely watch this again. So yeah, I, you know what? I will you know just being positive. I'll I will uh, parrot Matthew and give it a four point five, and uh, just feel good about myself. And uh, yeah, <laughs> well, someone has to, Dave. So that's good. <laughs> Yeah, this is, I don't think this is a surprise. Like I, I said at the very beginning, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I also don't really care so much about the technical aspects of this. I am much more engaged with the performances, uh, the music, and, and, and the comedy inside of itself. So I am giving it a perfect five out of five uh, in this case. That does mean, Dave, number one, that Harold Mudd is going to enter our list at the number one position. So we have a new number one on our list, which is very exciting. I look forward to you going back to your giving the one and out of fives oh, yeah. for no, uh, our next movie. Judging, <laughs> judging by the tone of the year, I, we're, there's probably a one coming up next. Whatever it oh, is, sure. we'll give it a one. Yeah. Well, let's find that out. I'm just going to push this little button over here. Uh, well, go, we're going from this movie with a relationship with an older person and a younger person to a movie with a, an older person with a lot of younger people, we're going to watch the James Bond movie, Diamonds Are Forever, <laughs> the last Sean Connery one. So, Oh, man. We'll, we'll quickly regale Matthew the tale of bringing on a James Bond expert for our last and, season. And you yelling at them? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I didn't make a friend. I, I thought I was being cordial, but apparently not. Yeah. Yeah. That is what we're watching uh, next week. Uh, Matthew, thank you so much for being on the show here today. This has been really great. I think now is the time for you to let people know if people wanted to follow you online, see what you're up to, what's the best way to do so? Yes. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, so happy that you guys have me on to talk Harold and Mom. Um, and if you, anyone wants to follow me anywhere, um, my name is Matthew K. Begby. That's my handle on everything. And my website, and I've tried very hard to make it easy to brand myself. So it's, it's right there for you. We uh we just watched this movie from 1999 that we put as like this little bonus episode the other day called American Movie. And if you want to have bad branding, try and search search for the movie American <laughs> Movie in Google, and nothing comes up. <laughs> yeah, they really uh. They slept on that one a yeah, little bit. Really bad idea. <laughs> um, I think how we should end this off is maybe you can answer that question more specifically, Matt, is why do we continue to make jokes about death? Oh, God. I mean, all of my favorite things are morbid, um, whether they're comedy or drama and or just my Twitter presence. Um, I talk about it a lot. I talk about death all the time. I joke about it. I joke about it probably more than I joke about anything else. 
And I also talk about it really honestly and really candidly with people in my life. And I think it's because it makes us less afraid of it. I, mm-hmm. I love talking about my funeral. I love it. I love saying, this is what I want to happen with my funeral. This is what I want to happen with my body. My father hates it. He's, he's also someone who probably would hate Harold and Mon. I'll be very honest. Um, sure. He hates it that I talk about death the way that I do. And I was like, I'm, I feel less worried about what's going to happen when I die because I've talked about it so much. Mm-hmm. And I know the people in my life know what I want when I die. And I, I joked about dying enough that it really my death is just going to be the punchline. So I'm happy. I, I like it. the idea of you just like every new person you meet, you just hand out a pamphlet, like how I die. I just yeah. need you to know this. I'm so. actually just, if I I'm die tomorrow. Yeah. I want to know the plan. In Space Nobody Can Hear You podcast.